Have you ever felt that if you could just be in a different position, you could get some good things done? Have you ever felt that if you could just be in a different place or a different situation, you could really accomplish some good in the world? But here you are. You know, the hourly worker, they have so many strictures on them and so many procedures and policies that pretty much all you can do is be the automaton that does exactly what you're told to do often. At least I've felt that way sometimes. And you think, boy, if I could be in charge, I could change this thing. Uh, and then you've get into management at some point, often in middle management, then you, you know, then the middle manager, she sits with leaders above her and leaders below her and leaders below her are pressing up one agenda or seven agendas and leaders above her are pressing down an agenda or seven different agendas and there's so many different competing, pulling pressures. She doesn't even have time to focus on the things she wished she could do. If she ever got into that spot, she's on the rack of bureaucratical tension. Or maybe you move higher up in the echelons of leadership and other people look at you and think, well, just say it and it's done. Why don't you change it? Why don't you move something? Why don't you make it happen? And, but you know there's processes and procedures. You know there's approval hoops. You know that there's other people impinging on what's going on. There's multiple constituencies. There's lots of perspectives. There's a certain group of people over here and a certain group of people over there. And maybe you're higher up, but you don't feel like you can make it happen either. And then you maybe are the leader, and you start to know things you never knew before. <laughs> things the previous leader couldn't even tell you. It wouldn't have been right for them to tell you. They can't tell you what's going on. And if you weren't the leader and you're looking up and saying, oh, I wish you'd do this, will you become the leader? You think, oh, I didn't even know. And they can't know. And it's on me. Do you ever wish you could be in a different situation? Maybe it's not even a, a position of influence or leadership or structure or hierarchy. Maybe it's just a place of life. Every three or four hours, you're being woken up. And, and then when it's daytime, every extra living moment is given over to the care of this beautiful, loving creature that you've dedicated who now needs every single waking hour you can give. How do you have time to do anything else? Or maybe you've reached a place in life where you feel like you have no place. Have you ever found yourself wishing you were in a different position than you could really get things done? The book of Esther, which we're looking at today, it's in the middle of the Bible just before Job. If you have a physical 
Bible anymore. If not, just search, find the thing, get there. I'm not going to read every line of the book of Esther. So if you want to get more of the story filled in, it's on you. I don't mind if you're looking down and you have a blue face. I know that you're swiping, trying to figure out what's in between the lines. But the book of Esther has four major characters that it presents to us. And I think every single one of these major characters struggles with that feeling. The first one is introduced in chapter 1, verse 1. Read with me. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, or in your little footnote, Ahasuerus, just another name for the same guy. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, picture this now if you can, stretching all the way from India over to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. Here's Xerxes in a position. Picture it really geographically. Some historians describe it as from going from the Indus River all the way to the Nile. Others describe it as going all the way from the farthest extensions of Pakistan down to Sudan. However you describe it, geographically, this is a massive territory for a time when there are no planes, trains, or automobiles, right? This is a massive swath of land. It really is virtually almost all of the known civilized world under his thumb. This is the most powerful man alive, without question. Far and away, the most powerful, the most wealthy man alive. And what is Xerxes doing? He's throwing a party. And it's a big one. I mean, this is a serious party. Keep reading. For a full 180 days. Oh. 180 days. I'm not sure if you'd be happy or sad if you got that invitation, you know? I mean, how long can you go? 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. He has all the power in the world, all the wealth he could want, and what's he doing with it and why? For 180 days, he gathers all the leaders of all these 127 different provinces, the nobles, the people who are high up in the aristocracy, the people with money and the princes. He gathers them all together and doesn't try to look at them. He says, look at me. Displays his glory, his majesty, his wealth, his power. Why? Well, historically, uh, we know that King Xerxes at this time had a, a couple problems. There was a little revolt happening over in Egypt, which I guess actually, yeah, I'm going to get confused on the map. He has a little revolt happening over in Egypt, and he has an uprising in Babylon, that empire they just took over. And at the same time, he's building up for a major conquest of Greece. He has all the power he could want. He has all the wealth you could imagine. What's he going to do with it? He's going to fight to 
preserve on the one hand what he has and to increase what he doesn't have. He has power. He has wealth. Why is he bringing 180 nobles and princes and officials and military officers there? He wants every single one of them so impressed by him and so loyal to him, so so wondering at him that they all at the same time are completely loyal and committed to him and shaking in their boots when he shows up. That's what he wants. And then another seven-day banquet comes after it where his tight inner circle, the people on Capitol Hill and the Pentagon and the White House, all the people in the Citadel get their own party. He wants everybody in his back pocket before he goes all the way across the empire to march across you know, Turkey and into Greece and goes down to Egypt. He's going to spend four years on this campaign. And he needs people willing to lay their lives down because if they don't lay their life down, he'll take their life. He needs people pursuing wealth and power that only he could give, and he wants to show them the kinds of things that he could give. He has all the power, all the wealth, and what's he worried about? Keeping it and getting more. I think he might be American. (laughs) What makes you feel important? What makes you feel important? Whatever it is, wherever you center your sense of importance, you're going to focus on that. You're going to worry about that. You're going to preserve that, and you're going to try to increase it. What makes you feel important? It's obvious. It's as plain as the bald forehead on my face that that is what makes him feel important. Power and wealth. But how about you? Let's see if you're going down the road of Xerxes. Which do you worry about more? Preserving your power and increasing it. Preserving your position or maybe even elevating it. Do you worry about that? Or do you worry about stewarding whatever position and power you have for the sake of the people you serve? Nowhere in this text is King Xerxes saying, hey, what do the people in these provinces need now that I've got you all gathered? (laughs) Nowhere does he seem to ask, hey, what would you all do if you were in my position? What's the wisdom you have to bring? What do you most need? He doesn't care about that. He's worried about preserving his power and his position and increasing it, not stewarding it for those he serves. What, What do you worry about most in terms of your wealth? I know money makes money. You know that too, don't you? takes money to make money, you hear your crass uncle say. And to some degree, you want your money to make money. I mean, read Matthew 24 and 25 and and all that kind of stuff if you want. Maybe that's an economical thing. I'm not sure it is, but maybe it is. To some degree, you want to steward money and make it grow. But to what end? Are you worried more about whether your wealth is growing or about where your wealth is going? Which do you check more, your bank accounts and stock accounts or your giving reports? And don't think just because you don't have much money, you don't need to think about it. The patterns you form when you don't have money probably won't increase at the pace you think they will when you have more. There's going to be leakage between now and then, those of you who don't have much money. Set the bar higher than you think. Don't worry, you'll bring it back down later. (laughs) 
There it does seem to be some correlation between how we orient our lives, whether it's centered around God, whether it's centered around some other reality, some other agenda, some other rule, some other reign than our own lives and our own world. New Hampshire is arguably the most secular and atheistic state in the country. One out of three people believe there's a God at all in New Hampshire. And they have an average giving of 1.7% of their income. The most giving people by percentage are not rich, actually. The most giving people by percentage are poor religious people all across the country. Which do you worry about more, preserving and increasing your power and wealth or stewarding it to help those you're called to serve? If it's the former, you're heading down the road to Xerxes. Even if all you think you're doing is checking your nest egg every now and then. Mordecai, our second character, seemed to have a different sense of what made him important. He's introduced in chapter 2, if you want to flip over there. There's a little uh, set of scenes that happen that are pretty important, though, between Mordecai walks onto the stage. So Xerxes, this powerful man who wants to increase his power, increase his wealth, at the end of his 180-day banquet, has a seven-day banquet. At the end of his seven-day banquet, he calls for Vashti, his queen, his wife, to come wearing her turban, her crown, and to display her beauty before all the men he's with who've been getting drunk for seven days. Now, if you were that woman in that position, what would you be thinking? Maybe what she was thinking, uh-uh, no, I'm not going to go parade my beauty, whether it was clothed or not, we're not quite sure. He only mentions a turban. Some early commentators think he only meant the turban, and that's why she said no. Whether it was clothed or not, we do not know, but one thing was obvious, she's being asked to be the trophy he displays. And she is, as Klein, one commentator on Esther says, simply exercising her basic human right to say no. Her basic human right to choose when her body will and won't be viewed. And for that refusal, she's deposed. Potentially killed, we're not sure, at least deposed. Because she's undercutting his power. Here he is with all his generals, all the people that he's supposed to command. They're supposed to charge death in the face at his word, and his own wife will walk in the room. Ha, 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 they're laughing at him. Ha, 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 ha. And then they realize, wait a second, our wives are with Vashti in that other room, and maybe they're not going to come when we call. Wait, we need to get them under our thumb. It is a terribly abusive view towards women. The whole book of Esther is full of abusive women. It's horrifying. And then we have Mordecai. Vashti's deposed. King Xerxes goes on his jaunt all around the world. He fails in Greece. He comes back depressed. They try to make him encouraged. He thinks, hmm, Vashti, she used to comfort me. Not available. What do we do? Let's gather all the young virgins who are beautiful in the kingdom and give them over to the king. Verse 5. Chapter 2. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, the Kish who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken with, captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. So he's four generations into this exile thing. That's what all that means. 
Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, a Jewish name, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. She's an orphan. This girl, who was also known as Esther, that is not a Jewish name, maybe Ishtar the god, maybe Star, either way, it's not a Jewish name, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when his father and mother died. We have a little cuneiform tablet with the name Mordecai pressed into it with the stylus. Mordecai, scribe of Xerxes. So as best we can guess, maybe that's the Mordecai that's being talked about here. It sure seems like a lot of coincidences coming together. Mordecai sits at the king's gate. Mordecai is a, is a minor palace official. Mordecai carries the name Mordecai, 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 right? You see it? If that's the case, he's not making law, but he's writing down what's law. If that's the case, he's not making things happen, but he knows what's going to happen. Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. He hears the king's edict. He knows that every beautiful young virgin in the land is going to be taken. If they're really beautiful, if they hold themselves well, if they're well-respected, they're going to be taken, and there's no choice. I know your picture Bibles. Uh, this is not a beauty pageant. This is not Miss Persia, <laughs> you know, do her special talent. <laughs> I want world peace. <laughs> go Xerxes, go Xerxes, but I want world peace. It's not a beauty pageant. And it's not a Cinderella ball. This is human trafficking at the imperial level. And Mordecai, who has found a way to feel important in the world that actually is glorious, is beautiful, it's compelling. He found those who needed him most, especially Esther. She's the one in all the world who needed him more than anyone else. He doesn't focus on his position. He doesn't seem to focus on climbing the ladder. He doesn't seem to focus on wealth or pomp or anything else. He focuses on Esther, on Hadassah, and he helps her figure out how to be in the world but not of the world and navigate this exilic life she's trying to live. Is it Hadassah where they'll look at you and say, what kind of name is that? Or is it Esther? Is that wrong? Am I giving up my identity? He's helping her figure out a way through this life in Persia. He's helped her become a well-composed woman who knows how to carry herself in public places. He has helped shape her into someone everyone respects so when the king's men are going to ride into town, Mordecai knows that when they ask, who are the most respected, beautiful young virgins in town, Esther's going to pop up. Can you imagine that scene? pulling this daughter whom he loves as his daughter aside and say, look, they're coming. I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure they're coming and they're gonna come get you. And I've been trying to figure out what to tell you and we're stuck in between a rock and a hard place, but here's the best creative solution I can come up with. You're gonna be stretched two different directions, but Esther, don't fight, don't resist. There's two options. You resist, they kill you. You don't resist, you become a plaything of the king. That's the only two options. That's all we have. You're no good to God, and you're no good to our people dead. Don't fight, Esther. Knock, knock, open in the name of the king. Can you see that scene? 
And Mordecai cares for her and says, go with them. Don't resist them. I'll be just outside the gate of the harem every day. I'll be there. And he was not just standing, pacing, wringing his hands. How's Hadassah? How's Esther? How is she waiting for a word? He pours into her life, and even when she's in the harem, he guides her. He's the one who tells her to be teachable. I imagine he's the one who says, do whatever the eunuch tells you to do and nothing else. He's the one who helps her stay in that space, in that way, and gain favor. He's the one who comes up with the creative and fresh solutions. Mordecai. What made him important was simply figuring out who in the world needed him most and caring for them as best he knew. That's not rocket science. It's hard work. Who's your Esther? I asked you first what makes you feel important. Now I'm asking you, who's your Esther? Who are those in your life who need you the most? Usually you don't have to go to some far-flung place to find them. God may take you to a far-flung place and there they are. But more often they're right in front of your nose. There's a great book out there uh, that I've never read called uh, Every Boy Needs 11 Fathers. What a great title. I mean, I just don't even need to read the book. That's what I needed was the title. Thanks for the title. Don't need to read that. I know I'm not supposed to say that. I'm a professor, but it's true. I didn't read it. Every boy needs 11 fathers. I think it's true. Every daughter needs 11 mothers. I think every boy needs another mother besides his mother. I think every daughter needs another father figure besides her own father, whether they're orphaned or not, because we're all weak. We all need somebody else, right? And we can be that for someone and not just adoptive parents. We can be those sort of parental figures or those mentoring figures that people need. Who's your Esther? Have you noticed her? Have you noticed him? I don't think most of us will change the world directly by what we do. I really don't think that'll happen. Many of us, though, will change the future of the world by the lives we pour our souls into because we truly, deeply, down to our marrow, love them more than ourselves. Here's a picture on the screen in just a moment. Uh, It's not going to be someone you recognize. This is William Cockrell. Most of you probably wouldn't know about him. He's a He's a politician from New York in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Probably doesn't even ring a bell. When you go to his Wikipedia page, you won't find much there either. It's a pretty weak little Wikipedia. Sorry, man. I mean, there's just nothing there. But this guy fell in love with a woman from England, and she had a son who seemed to be sort of uh, anchorless and without direction and needed a father figure. She sent him across the pond to meet with William Cockrell in the upper echelons of New York society. He taught him how to speak. William taught him how to relate. William taught him how to relate to Americans as well as to the people he came from in Britain. And uh, he was a great orator, by the way. One of the best things about him was he knew how to speak. Didn't get much done, but he knew how to speak, and he taught this guy how to speak. And when Winston Churchill went back to England, he went back a different man. And when, when historians compare Winston Churchill's speeches with William Cockrell's speeches, they see so similarities, so many similarities and so many commonalities that they think William Cockrell was the primary impetus behind the man who said, I have nothing to give you but blood, toil, sweat, and tears. Never, 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 ever, never, never give up. Can you imagine how World War II might have turned out without a Winston Churchill? Can you imagine how much worse the Holocaust could have been without that persuasive rhetorical power passed to him from this man? None of us will remember. 
The next little image here is his gravestone. At the bottom it says, God gave him the great gift of speech, which he used for his faith and his country. None of us remember that. We remember Winston. Winnie. Next image. You probably don't know this one either. Uh, some of you do care about this sort of history of civil rights and uh, African-American history in our country. A few of you do, not many. Here's Benjamin Mays, president of Howard University. Uh, he mentored many young men and women in his day, but especially uh, mentored one who he called his spiritual son, got really close to him, and in the time of the civil rights, uh, decided that nonviolent resistance was the way for us to go and sent this student to meet Mahatma Gandhi. He said, Mahatma Gandhi has a picture of Jesus by his bed and says that he believes everything Jesus taught but doesn't believe what his followers are doing. Go listen to Mahatma Gandhi. Listen to what he's saying. See what you can learn from him. And Martin... Luther King Jr. came back a changed man. Martin Luther King Jr. said that he was a spiritual father to him, and he guided him through those difficult, dark, dangerous days, and when Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral happened, he spoke. We don't remember him. We haven't read his books. We remember Martin. He's a Mordecai who knew his Esther, and it changed the world. Who's your Esther? The third character is introduced to us as an opposite of Mordecai. Chapter 3, if you'll turn there. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Why? It troubled me the last few weeks, reading over this book again and again and again, digging into the background behind it. Why? None of the answers at first were very satisfying. A few people said, well, this is just spiritual resistance. He's a Jew. He's not going to worship another god. He's not going to bend his knee. But Haman isn't made into a god. Haman isn't being divinized, and neither is the emperor here. The king, Xerxes, is not pretending to be god. This isn't Pharaoh. It's not the same thing. And Mordecai had to bend his knee and had to pay honor to other people. He'd been working at the king's gate all this time. If he was unwilling to give the culturally appropriate signs of honor, he would have been fired or killed. <laughs> and this is the first time he has a problem with this one dude. What's the deal with Haman? And then I started digging. Haman the Agagite. And I didn't know what Agagite was. I'm sorry to admit it, but I didn't. What's Agagite? You know, I know about the Jebusites and the Parasites. But I know about a lot of ites, but I didn't know Agagite. What's Agagite? Turns out, apparently as best we can tell, it's referencing King Agag, king of the Amalekites. And they want to reference this violent king who was an enemy and attacker of Israel. And Mordecai is introduced as a Benjamite. Haman is introduced as an Agagite. For us, it would be like saying, Mordecai the Hatfield and Haman the... Say it. Yeah. 
See, you know right away. I think the people reading this knew right away. They said, Mordecai the Benjamite and Haman the Ag. Oh, the oh, oh. Yeah, this is getting ugly fast, isn't it? And it did. I think this is Mordecai's tragic flaw, where his feet are clay. He is embittered and prejudiced against the Amalekites, and he says to himself, I won't bend my knee to one of those. Maybe because he thinks his importance is done. Esther is now queen. Esther seems to be set up. Esther seems to be fine. Maybe she doesn't need me. What do I have to do? I'm just pushing little stylus into clay tablets. What, what importance does that have? That's it. I've had it. I'm done. I'm not bending my knee there. But it's prejudice, whatever you want to call it. And there is a scale of prejudice here that goes a long ways, way over here with Mordecai and perhaps a people group who suffered violence and suffered oppression. Way over here on the other side, you have the murderous, sociopathic, genocidal Haman. And the only reason we don't notice Mordecai's prejudice is Haman's is so hideous. I mean, he says, well, far be it for me to just kill one Jew. I'm going to kill all of them once he finds out they're Jews. But in between here and there, is an unbroken, gradated scale of bigotry. So let me ask you a question. Whose suffering would you enjoy? Can you think of anyone? If you can think of a people group or a religion or a political group, or a party, or a lifestyle, or a set of belief systems, or any kind of way of orienting people, if they would suffer, or one of them would suffer, would you enjoy it? A little secret enjoyment? Or maybe it's in your family tree somewhere, somebody gets the smackdown and you smirk. Or maybe it's in your work environment, somebody gets embarrassed publicly and you grin. Whose suffering would you enjoy? Christians, what we tweet and what we post sometimes sets up and fuels cycles of violence around the world it matters. Sometimes what we tweet and what we post and what we say fuels genocidal violence. Stop it. Don't say drop a bomb on them. Don't post that. Don't do it. Don't ridicule people. Don't put labels on people. Don't put people in a big category and then reject the category. Quit it. I'm telling you, it comes back on the people of God. And even if it didn't, it's wrong. I love Lewis Smead's old quote when he talks about bitterness. He says, it's like burning down your whole house in order to kill a rat. That's your house. There's only one world, and we live in it. What makes you feel important? Who's your Esther? Is there anyone who's suffering you would enjoy? And then we get the heroine. The 
protagonist of the story, the only one who comes out with a clean record, Esther. And if you think Esther is a weak character, I, I beg to differ with you. Esther is traumatized in the very earliest days. We don't know why, but she's orphaned. It's a traumatic experience. She could have felt abandoned by God, embittered against the world. Somehow she emerged. And when she's just on the cusp of adulthood, in the full bloom of her early adulthood life, ready to pursue the hopes and dreams she must have had, they're snatched away from her forcibly by the culture she lives in. Bam, she has no way to reverse it. There's no way out. She can never leave that space. It's done. And now that she is in the king's harem and all of her people are being threatened, she doesn't completely reject the idea. If you thought that, it's not true. She's asking Mordecai for more advice. Do you know, Mordecai, I don't know if you do, that if I come into the king and I wasn't invited, he doesn't give me the scepter, I'm dead immediately. They cover my face and I'm done. Do you know that? Do you know, Mordecai? Maybe he doesn't know. I haven't been invited for 30 days. The king's forgotten me. He has other women. She's asking for more advice. Mordecai, all of this point, up to this point in her life, Mordecai has protected her and preserved her and made her think, what good are you dead? Don't be dead, right? And now he's saying, risk death. Why? What's going on, Mordecai? Are you sure? And as soon as he says he's sure, and as soon as he makes his argument for the sake of all who need her most now, she gets it and says, fine, fast, pray, I'll do it. Esther is a beautiful example of incredible, teachable courage. I mean, she's incredibly humble and incredibly bold at the same time, risking her neck, but very wisely and prudently setting it up. It's an amazing picture of how to lead in the toughest of situations, Esther. But most of us never become Esther because we didn't listen to Mordecai. <laughs> we just didn't. Maybe in our youngest days, we didn't listen to Mordecai because we didn't want to. We wanted to go our own way. Maybe farther down the road, God gave us to Mordecai and we ignored them. Or maybe even farther down the road, Mordecai got us all the way to the point where we were in a position of influence and power. Mordecai got us in. And at the very moment we need Mordecai most, we stop listening and stop asking. And we think, well, now I'm in a different position. I always thought I could get some things done. And we're in the seat of Xerxes. If you're going to be Esther, you have to ask yourself, who is my Mordecai? And you got to be teachable. Esther doesn't know whether or not this is the moment she has to throw it all into the wind. She doesn't know if this is the time to say, all in, all my chips in the center. Sorry, Wesleyan's poker analogy. You don't know what I'm talking about. Keep moving on. Uh, she doesn't know if this is the time when she is supposed to put her neck on the line. She can't know. You can't know. I can't know. We're too close into the situation. We absolutely, desperately need somebody a little bit more removed to help us figure that out. I have a hunch that maybe this wouldn't have even happened if Mordecai had had a Mordecai. Just say, look, buddy, just bend your knee. Give him honor. What's the point of this? You realize you're being a bigot. 
But Esther listens to her Mordecai and throws it all in. Doesn't protect her position, doesn't protect her power, doesn't try to increase her wealth or influence. She even admits that she's a different person, another person than the king knew when he married her. She admits her religious orientation. She admits everything that might remove her from power. And if history is teaching us something, maybe did. Vashti seems to come back. We don't know. I do know this. God is placing Mordecai's in your path for a purpose. And we walk right past them so often. And we forget about them so often. And we fail to listen at the right time. What makes you feel important? Who's your Esther? Whose suffering would you enjoy? Who's your Mordecai? I really don't think we are going to transform our culture by positions. We will transform our culture when we look around us and find out who needs us most, pour our whole heart and soul into them because we love them more than we love ourselves, and listen to those who are doing the same for us. And when we do that, silently, secretly, the good news is God is invisibly setting up a chain of events that will work together with another chain of events, invisibly, imperceptibly, behind the scenes. You wouldn't even always name him. Esther never does in the book. But he's there, setting things up in order to save the world because he's the only one 